Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, will the Surrey policing soap opera end today as council votes to stop all new hiring? Plus, $300 for a box of children's Advil? We look at price gouging for kids' cold medicine. Plus, it's just too soon. Putting up the Christmas tree in November? How early is too early for Christmas? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. just a few hours, Surrey's new city council is to vote on the future of policing in the city. On the agenda is a vote on a staff report outlining two options. Either keep the RCMP in its current contract or move forward with the transition to the Surrey Police Service. Now, if councillors vote to maintain the RCMP in Surrey, staff will present a plan to BC's Solicitor General Mike Farnworth on how the transitioning municipal force will be uh, dismantled. Now, earlier today, uh, Surrey Councillor uh, Linda Annis spoke to our Simi Sarah, and she says uh, that uh, she is urging BC Solicitor General Mike Farmer to call on the city to hold a public referendum that will allow residents to decide whether Surrey should be policed by the RCMP or a municipal police force. Take a listen. 72% of the residents of Surrey did not vote for Brenda Locke. So she does not have a clear mandate to be moving forward with uh, the reversal back to the RCMP. What I heard loud and clear when I was knocking on doors and talking to the residents of Surrey was, where are we at with this? Are we, are we too far down the road? Can we even go back? What would it cost to go back? How much have we spent today? None of those answers could I answer, nor could Brenda Locke. We need to get the facts on the table before we t- start making a decision of this magnitude. Now, during the uh, municipal election in October, uh, Mayor Locke's key campaign promise was to scrap the transition to a municipal force, but that promise has been met with some resistance. Of course, uh, Doug McCallum also won by a very narrow margin, but he said his victory uh, was what was required for, at that point, the the city of Surrey to move towards or transition towards a municipal police force. Ms. Locke, who has won by less than uh, 900 votes, says, look, she has a mandate to dismantle the SPS, because that is what she ran on. Now, SPS Union President Rick Stewart says more than 90% of Surrey Police Union members have signed a pledge basically stating if the Surrey Police Service ceases to exist, members have no intention to apply or join any RCMP uh, detachment. Uh, now, Ms. Locke has spoken, to, have, has spoken to reporters, and on November 10th, says she was disappointed with the SPS Union's tactics and that the public has spoken on keeping the RCMP in the city. Now, Council Linda Anna says the city needs to soon make a final decision on policing. Well, I think it's time that we engage more uh, in a much better way with the residents of Surrey. We have done a dismal job involving them with the decision-making process around this police transition, and it's been a hugely divisive topic. Nobody really knows how much it costs, where we're going with it, or why we're doing it. We need to get the facts on the table and let the residents decide once and for all uh, so that we can get on with business at City Hall. Joining me now to talk about what is transpiring in Surrey, it is probably Metro Vancouver's run, longest-running uh, soap opera, is Richard Zussman, Global BC reporter based uh, at the legislature. Hello, Richard. It is a giant soap opera, Jazz. You are right about that. It has been for a while, and that, uh, I guess, is a new episode on tonight. It's, on <laughs> tonight. it's, it's been running longer than almost days of our lives, I think. <laughs> it really has. So walk me through this. They're going to vote today whether or not they're going to go ahead with SPS or uh, stop this transition and essentially stick with the RCMP. Now, if they were to vote 
against the SPS, so keep the Surrey RCMP, which to my understanding is where they're headed, of course, is this what Brenda Locke ran on. What would the process be after that in regards to the provincial government? Yeah, so the big thing here, Jazz, is this transitional report. So when Mayor McCallum uh, made the decision that he was going to forge forward with his council to move away from uh, the Surrey RCMP to the Surrey Police Force, what needed to be proven was that the safety of the residents of Surrey would be upheld during a transition period and then post-transition. And that report was prepared in conjunction with the provincial government with an assessment done by Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth, and then the go-ahead was given. So no matter how City Surrey City Hall votes tonight, there still needs to be a transition report that is prepared by uh, the city, handed over to Mike Farnworth, working through his department, and then ultimately the province makes the decision about whether this is something that's feasible or not. Mm-hmm. I guess the question is going to be, first of all, what's the cost so far of transition? The budget's always was started at $19 million. Now it was $60 million plus. I think the numbers, as some have speculated, is close to $200 million. Uh, I guess at what point will the residents of Surrey say that enough is enough? If we're past the point of return, let's move forward. We, yeah. I mean, the city can't absorb uh, these growing costs at the end of the day. And, and that was one of the major issues during the election campaign was who is using the correct numbers. That uh, Brenda Locke was accused of using inflated numbers of how much the transition would cost and that by pausing it, it was financially prudent. Uh, Doug McCallum was saying it wasn't going to cost anything Somewhere the reality is in the middle. The other crucial piece aside from cost, Jazz, is staffing. And ultimately, uh, the province will need to make a determination if they believe that the Surrey RCMP can continue to staff at a level that ensures public safety. There was a release out today from the Surrey Police Board and the Surrey Police Service that says the numbers used in the report tonight the council is assessing were deflated, that it didn't truly represent how large the SPS was. The number that was disputed was the report says there's 154 deployed officers uh, out of um, the targeted strength of 734, so 21%. The union argues that it's actually closer to 43% or 315 police officers. These are the sort of numbers that the province will have to look at and say, okay, how many current Surrey RCMP officers are there? Are they going to continue on with their jobs? If they don't, how many more will we need to hire? Is this feasible to ensure the safety of the public? So money, yes, is one thing. And I don't know, Jazz, who ultimately can make that determination about a point of no return, because that is not what Minister Farnworth is assessing. He's not assessing the cost. But ultimately, if there is a cost, no debt will be passed on to the Surrey taxpayer, because the province is not interested in picking up the cost to pay for this political drama that's unfolded in Surrey. Yeah, and Norm Lipinski, uh, the chief constable of the Surrey Police Service, um, on this show said that if you had to cut a check for all the police officers, including the executive team, you'd probably be about $60 million in severance. That's on top of whatever they already spent in regards to building up the, the organization. So somewhere along the way, the residents of Surrey uh, have to be looking at this. Now, Mike Farnworth, as much as this is a... A political conversation. It's an administrative conversation. Yep. There is an overarching political lens to this, which is 
of the, I think it's 12 seats in Surrey or 11, whatever it may be, the majority are NDP seats. He's got to make sure he doesn't want to rock the boat and at any point jeopardize those uh, provincial uh, seats uh, based on his decision. Yeah, and that's the challenge here is when you have a community that's divided on an issue, the province needs to try to find its footing where they're not going to isolate those that are supporting them at the provincial level. So he's clearly treading carefully here. The flip side of that, and and you play the clips from Linda Annis, is this idea of a referendum. This does not seem to be something that is particularly interesting to the province. They don't believe that this is going to be an effective tool, considering we've now had consecutive Surrey elections where the predominant issue is policing. And in both cases, uh, the mayor that won has control of council. And the province has thought when McCallum won, and now when Brenda Locke has won, that that is the voter speaking. We don't need a separate referendum on a very specific issue to move forward. If there was ever a referendum, though, Jazz, like clearly we need to find the footing in terms of exact numbers here. Like what is the cost? What is the staffing? Because right now, even based on what we're seeing before council today, these numbers are not accurate for the public to be able to get a full assessment of the situation. Well, we'll be watching uh, closely tonight uh, as these are the days of our lives as we watch (laughs) what transpires in Surrey, uh, Surrey City Hall, that's for sure. Richard, thanks for your time, my friend. My pleasure as always, Jess. Thanks for having me. Amazon plans to lay off approximately 10,000 people in corporate and technology jobs starting as soon as this week in what would be the largest job cuts in the company's history. The total number of layoffs remains fluid, but if it stays around 10,000, that would represent nearly 3% of Amazon's corporate uh, employees. Uh, today's news comes after a, st- a string of tech layoffs, if you think about it. Meta, which is the parent uh, company to Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, announced last week 11,000 job cuts. Of course, you heard about Twitter uh, uh, eliminating 3,700 jobs. Lyft, the ride-sharing company, um, uh, last week said 700 jobs would be cut, or about 13% of its uh, staff. Um, an online payment giant, Stripe, has said it's cutting 1,100 jobs, or 14% of its staff. Shopify, which is a Canadian company, says it's cutting around uh, 1,000 jobs. They announced that in July. Microsoft, even Microsoft, said they're cutting about 1,000 jobs. Uh, and they announced that in October. Snap, which is a parent company to Snapchat, uh, said it's also cutting um, uh, jobs as well. And Tesla, earlier this year in June, said it's cutting 10% of its salaried employees as well. So what is the reasoning behind all this tech bloodbath. Joining me now is Andy Brewer, tech and digital expert at handyandymedia.com. Hello, Andy. Hi, Jazz. Hi. So walk me through this. What's causing all this? I think a lot of these companies, two things, Jazz. One (laughs) is we relied on technology a lot during uh, the pandemic and especially during the lockdown. And a lot of these companies thought that that was the future, that we were just going to be all these wired in people buying everything using e-commerce. Um, But once the pandemic kind of ended and we started to come back out, we went back to our old ways. And so a lot of those kind of economic outlooks that they had went down. Now, you combine that with the inflation and the gloomy global outlook of the economy. I think those two things have really made it look 
uh, put the, the writing on the wall that the future is looking kind of bleak and they need to trim and cut costs and try to make it through that um, and basically survive. Uh, is this a temporary thing, though? By temporary, I mean a couple of years and they'll be hiring these a lot of these folks back? Or do you think this is a case of some of these tech companies just maturing and don't need uh, the people like they did, let's say, 10 years ago when they're all growing by 50, 60, 70 percent a year? We see this trend a lot in tech for some reason, Jazz. When things are good, it is flying. You know, the, the abundance, the parties, the, the, they start hiring and trying to attract the top talent. And then when things look bad, they start cutting. And the thing about tech is the most valuable asset at a tech company is the talent. But it, time and time again, we've seen this over and over again, that when the bottom line finds a new bottom, mm-hmm. when, the, when there's dark clouds on the economic horizon, companies are willing to write off that investment, their talent, and kick them to the curb. And so the problem with this situation is a lot of these companies are also doing hiring freezes. So if you got laid off and all the other tech companies are on hiring freezes, so the big question is, what are they going to do? And the optimist in me, Jazz, thinks that a lot of them will start startups. You know, they have a lot of talent. A lot of people out there looking for work. They might get together and, you know, do that idea that they've always had in the back of their mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, in specific to Amazon, are you surprised, though, just speak before sort of the critical holiday shopping season that they make these cuts? They could have waited, uh, you know, a couple of months and, and then perhaps think about this rather than do it right now? Yeah, the, the Facebook and the meta, the, those layoffs don't really surprise me because Mark Zuckerberg is kind of out to lunch with this idea of the metaverse. But when Amazon, just before the holidays, starts cutting 10,000 of their workforce, when they typically increase their headcount to meet for the holiday demand, that just shows you that you know there's trouble in the future. When Amazon is having trouble, trust me, all the other e-commerce uh, companies out there are having trouble as well. But most of their cuts, Jazz, are within their uh, their own divisions for their products. So their Echo line of products. They have been investing so much in these smart speakers, their voice assistant, Alexa, and trying to put all this R&D to make us all like addicted to these kind of voice assistants. But the fact of the matter is a lot of people just use it to get the weather, maybe play some radio, the news, or tell a dad joke. And so their idea of what that would do and how it would transform our lives hasn't really resonated with the average consumer. Now, for geeks like me, I use it all the time, but the average person is not. And so they're making cuts in those divisions because they actually lose money on those Echo devices, but they were willing to do that to kind of change our behavior. But that's just not happening. Yeah. I mean, I just, I've got, uh, actually got three of them in my house, the the the, the Amazon, um, the Alexas, and I think they're fabulous. They work well for me, uh, the ability to get the weather and news and not have to rely on the old-fashioned alarm clock is just amazing. The sound is really good, actually, for those little things. But I, I, I'm going to assume they're low margin as well. Like they, they, they're, they're selling them at very thin margins, I'm assuming. Yeah. I, in most cases, they're not even making a profit on them. If you look at the little ones, those Echoes, they'll sell them for like $30. But they wanted us to have them in every room. They wanted us to create groups, turn our lights on and off. The, the one good thing I, I would say, Jazz, for anyone with the, uh, one of those Amazon Alexa devices is you can set it up with a smart switch to turn your coffee maker on from bed. And that has been a game changer in my life. But unfortunately, a lot of people aren't taking advantage of that. And Amazon has been investing so much R&D into that. 
Now they're cutting back. They're starting to realize we're not making any money here. People aren't changing their behaviors. We're going to have to just stick to our core competency, and that's just selling stuff. And they've they've cut those kind of divisions uh, with these recent layoffs. Wow. Hey, I want to ask you one question completely unrelated to this, and we've, we've done the, the tech conversation. We're doing this segment uh, uh, at 430, but I wanted to ask you, for Christmas season, uh, we've had an ongoing debate this weekend. Uh, this uh, weekend, I was looking at Instagram, and I noticed uh, there was a singer, Millie Bobby Brown, who is uh, putting up uh, decorations on her Christmas tree. And I'm not talking just starting. I'm talking this looked like Christmas Day. It was a beautiful scene, and they're running, you know, the song from Mariah Carey, uh, and it sounded beautiful. When does Christmas begin for you? Because when I looked at that, there's lots of people commenting, going, "Way too soon, way too soon." When does when do you think it's okay to decorate uh, the home or put up a Christmas tree? Oh, well, see, for me, it's December 1st, and it has to be gone after New Year's. The day after New Year's, you know, when you're hungover, that's the day that you pack everything up and put it away and start off a fresh new year. So I'm not for that. I I think it should be December, for the month of December, and then gone right when the new year hits. It was just November 12th, and like I said, it looked like it was Christmas Day. It was beautiful. Uh, Even Mariah Carey commented on on her Instagram feed saying, too early, too early. So I was very curious. we're going to have that conversation at 4.30, but I'm going to ask you for our guests. So thank you so much, Andy. Appreciate it, my friend. Thanks, Chaz. Let's talk about the Middle Kingdom. To say Canada's relationship with China is frayed is an understatement. Just today, a Hydro-Quebec employee accused of sending trade secrets to China has been charged with espionage. The employee, Yu Sheng Wang, who was 35, was arrested this morning at his home in Candiac, Quebec. Following an RCMP investigation, he'll appear in court on Tuesday to face four charges. He's accused of fraud uh, for obtaining trade secrets, unauthorized use of a computer, breach of trust by a public officer, and obtaining trade secrets, a charge under the Security of Information Act. Uh, This is all occurring uh, when uh, we've had other conversations around China on this show earlier this month, three Chinese-controlled mining firms were told to divest their interests in Canadian uh, lithium mines. Also this month, we learned of a network of unsanctioned and illegal Chinese police stations around the world used to exert pressure on exiles and expatriates. Some of, some of those various police stations are said to operate uh, in Canada. We also learned this month that CSIS identified a clandestine network of Beijing-backed candidates in our recent election. At least 11 candidates were supported by China in the 2019 federal election. Global News reported, uh, Sam Cooper being the specific reporter, reported that Beijing had directed funds to the candidates and that Chinese operatives had acted as campaign advisors to many candidates. In one case, funding 250,000, funding of 250,000 was directed through the office of an Ontario-based provincial politician. The operation, which was reportedly directed from China's consulate in uh, Toronto, also sought to place operatives within the offices of serving MPs in an attempt uh, to influence policy. Uh, also, there were efforts uh, made to co-opt and corrupt former Canadian officials in a bid to gain influence within political circles. Uh, the attempted interference, get this, is believed to have targeted both major political parties federally, so the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party. Joining me now to discuss our frayed relationship with China is Miro Trinetic. He is CEO of Brand Centric, which helps build brands for leaders. He's also the co-founder of City Age. He is also the former Beijing correspondent for The Globe and Mail. Miro, thank you for joining us today. Uh, good to be here, Jeff. Uh, lots to talk about. Uh, in your mind, uh, with this rather long intro on my part, but I wanted to sort of put some context to where we are with China. Your thoughts, where are we in your mind uh, with our relationship with China today and now? 
Well, I, I, we're not in a good place, and we, I think we're at an inflection point for the country and uh, what I call Brand Canada. I, I spent a lot of time in, I spent about four years in Beijing from 97 to 2001, just when China entered the WTO. Um, and, you know, I watched China go from a, a country that had a very small trade surplus to one to one that had the biggest in the world. It was a real tr- moment of transition. And um, Canada really believed at that time, and we believed it from the 1970s onward, that China was going to become like us. And and I think what we're finding is that China is China, and we have to find a better way of dealing with China. And I would say to date, I don't think this is a political issue. I think it's I think it's a national identity issue for Canada um, that we're not we haven't done a very good job of interpreting what China is and how we relate to China and our own country but also at, in the world at large in terms of trade and geopolitics. What does this mean? If you, if you see our performance has been mediocre, poor, whatever it may be in handling China, what do we need to do moving forward, number one, and what impact do you think this has in our standing globally? Well, I, you know, I think, I think this works um, at a really fundamental level in, in terms of national sovereignty, something that China believes in itself. If, if, anyone, in, if anyone interferes with the political or national security process in China, they would be kicked out of the country, they would be arrested, or they would be put in front of a firing squad. That is just a fact. Um, So nobody does that in China because that's the reality. Um, The reality, what China is doing, um, and China is not the only country that does this, of course, and let's not confuse China with the Chinese, with Chinese people, which is a totally different thing. But the Chinese state does take part in foreign endeavors. It goes into countries, it puts operatives in, and they they spy and they attempt to take out IP, essentially, Mm -hmm. from those countries and influence um, those countries in a political level. And that's what we're seeing in Canada right now. And, uh, you know, we're at a moment when the Canadian parliament, I wouldn't say the government, I think it's the parliament, needs to do something about it. Um, when you look at countries like Australia, similar in size, although they are smaller than us, but a similar system of government, very similar in tone and temperament and, and to a certain degree. At the same time, when I watch the Australians, they seem to have a spine in regards to dealing with China, and they do a tremendous amount of uh, uh, trading with China when it comes to natural resources and other things. But they seem to have said, here's the line, you will not cross it. And they've been much more, I would say, forceful uh, in not only saying no to China, but in many ways defining who they are as Aussies as well. Yes, I think, you know, I think there is a cultural difference between Canadians and Australians in that respect. You know, I think I think we're much more diplomatic and, you know, we try to bridge the realities of the the Atlantic Alliance, of which really Australia is part of. And, um, you know, the the fact that China is one of the great countries in the world that we have to deal with. And we're in the middle of that. Uh, The Australians basically uh, take the position that they're going to basically adhere to it a U.S.-led position. I think we're falling into that a bit right now. But they have been much more aggressive in dealing with these, um, you know, the, the, these sort of issues of, of influence peddling by the Communist Party government mm-hmm. of China. Um, we have not been, you know, we have this case right now where we have a CSIS report, which is our, our uh, intelligence agency, um, which nobody is disputing, that says at least 11 federal candidates in the 2019 election were receiving funds or staff or some sort of resources in their campaigns from Chinese government operatives. Um, that, that would not stand, that does not stand in Australia. 
It certainly doesn't stand in the United States where people go to jail for that. Uh, in Canada, we're quite silent about it. We don't know the names of those 11 people, those candidates that may inadvertently, they may not know that they've gotten those those resources or that, that money from, from the Chinese government or its, or its agents, but they have. We don't know who they are. We don't know which party that they belong to, though it seems to be both parties. It doesn't seem like the NDP is involved in that. Um, but we don't know who those people are. We don't know if they were elected somewhere, I, I suppose. We don't know how many of those people might be in, in sitting in cabinet. Um, I have no idea. We have no idea how many of these people may be in parliamentary committees that um, involve security clearance. Um, and we don't know who their staff members are that might have directed these funds into our institutions. This, this is a major national security issue. And I suspect it's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, and you know, I can speak a little bit from experience as a former MLA uh, in a riding that had sizable uh, Chinese population, Cantonese speaking and Mandarin speaking, and having lived and worked in China as well. I think there are so many uh, groups, uh, a vast majority of them are, are part of uh, uh, Canada. They're part of making their community stronger. Uh, but whenever an, uh, an elected official gets invited to, let's say, an event in the Chinese community, you'll have different groups that may be uh, business, uh, business groups that's connected to, to the country, you don't know which one may be part of the United Front, the, the propaganda arm of the of the Chinese government. And even simple little advice like that, letting elected officials know that these six organizations or these 20 organizations are indirectly or directly related to the United Front or united to Beijing or their overarching um, uh, worldview is, is that of China's and not necessarily Canada. I think those even simple uh, uh, advice like that to an elected official – would be very helpful. But to my understanding, none of that is ever provided for elected officials. Well, that advice should be provided all the time by, mm-hmm. by our intelligence agency and, and, our, uh, and our foreign service, whatever they have it available. They don't always have it available. And I would say uh, this is not just a China issue. This happens with all countries. It happens with the Russian government. It, it's, happened, it's happened out of India. Mm-hmm. Um, the people, people who are national agents of other governments always are trying to infiltrate um, domestic governments. Canada is not alone in being a target. Um, it, it will not stop. It's just it's part of, part of the reality of, of nation states. But what we have to do as a country is when it happens, we identify it. We have to act vigorously to, um, to, to call it out and deal with the people who are doing it to show that this, this is just not, we, we will not allow this to, con- to continue. And this is not just about, uh, you know, Paula, you know, well, let me rephrase that. What this really is about, it is about national security because it involves military issues. Mm-hmm. It, it involves high-end IP. It involves the legitimacy and the integrity of your government. And these, these are the foundations of democracy and where they have to be defended. So when we find any country whether it be China or not China, doing this, we have to act vigorously uh, to, 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 to counter it. And I don't think we are doing that. Prior to the break, you were talking a little bit about uh, counteracting some of the things that China was doing, uh, Miro. And I was thinking back, even this year, I've talked to two or at least one elected official who was quite frustrated with the uh, briefing that they got from CSIS in regards to what they should be aware of, who they should be watching and and be concerned about. Another one, I was told that the MPs in the area were also briefed uh, here in, in the Lower Mainland, but once again, very generic, broad advice, nothing specific that would help them deal with the day-to-day interactions that do occur uh, when they meet uh, people. Uh, in your mind, um, the broader issue, of course, is is China and what they've already done 
in this country. When I think of Huawei and the fact that they were involved, uh, you know, in research with our universities, uh, could one argue that we've just waited too long to get to this point? I know there's lots been going on for the last eight weeks on this issue, and I think it's great to see. But in many cases, some would argue, look, this is, should have happened five, seven years ago. Is, is this too late for us? Oh, I, no, I don't think it's too late at all, but it is true that we've been very slow. When it comes to Huawei and the um, the issue of 5G technology going into the telecommunication system, we were the slowest in the Five Eyes Alliance, which is, you know, the, 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 the five chief, you know, it's the United States of so New Zealand, Australia, Brit, Britain, ourselves, um, who... Um, who basically run run their own their own surveillance agency that that um, is, is is part of the Atlantic of NATO's uh, security uh, establishment. Um, we were the the last. I think I think we were the last to say no to Huawei, and um, you know we that sounds out sounds up. I think very um, difficult messages for our allies. That we that we didn't take a, a, a fast stand on that they all did, um, so that brings us I think to a larger question about how Canada is regarded mm-hmm. in terms of how it deals with Chinese espionage or influence peddling inside our own country. Uh, I think perception is that we're slow and um, that we don't take it as seriously as we should. I do I would add though I do think um, our, our I do think the RCMP I do think CSIS I do think of many many of our civil servants take it extremely seriously they understand the import of this. But Canada has invested a lot of time for more than 40 or 50 years on a way of looking at that China has proven to be incorrect. That China is not going to become a democracy or a western style democracy. China is its own system. And we have to understand how to deal with it on those terms. And one of the things that China understands and respects are countries that stand up for their own sovereignty, which China does all the time. Mm-hmm. And is, is, is this the moment now for Canada in regards to its brand globally as well as, as, as a small country when you, talk, when you talk about population, that this is the moment for us to actually, the brand that is Canada, time to stand up to China? Well, I don't think it's, uh, I mean, I think, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit wary of when we only talk about China in this respect, because, again, there are other players that do this. I think Canada has to stand up for itself. There are a lot of, I mean, this country is built by Chinese people. <laughs> you know, our railways were built by Chinese people. So we have to be extremely careful when we use the word Chinese or China. Mm-hmm. I think what we're talking about is a government, a, it's an authoritarian government, a, essentially a surveillance state that uses all the techniques that are possible to get into countries around the world and find out whatever information and resources it, it can to uh, advance its own interests. And Canada has to understand that that is the China we are dealing with. And the way to deal with China, in my mind, is to be very aggressive when it comes to our sovereignty. When we see these breaches, small or large, we need to act quickly, and we have to act in a nonpartisan um, uh, level. We cannot have the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party pointing fingers at each other about which prime minister might have made the wrong error or didn't have the right banquet. What we need to know is, as a country, we are completely united on this. And you mentioned Australia. That is what Australia does. That is what the United States does. That is what the United Kingdom does. That's what Germany does. And that is a, and that is what we are not doing at the moment, at least not publicly. And I think that's where um, I think the confidence of Canadians in our approach to 
China is, um, I think, waning. Miro, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Uh, we could spend hours talking about this. Look forward to having you on on this subject because it's not going away anytime soon. Thank you so much today. Okay. Thank you, Jess. Welcome back to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. What you're listening to there is Dolly Parton and host Jimmy Kimmel with, I'm sure, which will be a November, November Christmas classic called It's Almost Too Early for Christmas. Brian, turn it up a little bit. It is, I think, an appropriate uh, introduction for our next segment. Now, it is just past Remembrance Day, of course. Over the weekend, uh, I made the mistake of looking at my Instagram feed and uh, actress Millie uh, Bobby Brown uh, posted a video of her decorating, as yes, decorating her Christmas tree. It was on November 12th and, and she was beaming this out to her nearly 60 million followers. And I'm not just saying she was starting out. I mean, she did a great job decorating this tree. It looked like it was Christmas Day. And I had to look down on my uh, watch to remind myself uh, that it is only November 12th when I was looking at it. And then she, of course, had uh, Mariah Carey's song, All I Want for Christmas, playing. So it was very festive. But I said, well, when is the right time to start decorating? Now, I've been given my orders to, to bring up the decorations this Saturday, so we'll probably bring them up anyway at our house and start decorating very soon. But we actually had a debate in this uh, in our newsroom today, but when's the right time to start celebrating Christmas? Uh, joining me now is our good friend and producer, Stephen Cheng. Hi, Stephen. Hello, sir. So <laughs> I brought this up, of course, today, and we had quite uh, the conversation about when is the right time to start decorating. Now, some say... It's uh, near Christmas time, a couple of weeks out. Some say it's December 1st. Um, I'm usually always been the December 1st guy, and I think this year we're just going to be really organized and get it up as soon as possible, so probably late November. Uh, I was surprised by Millie Bobby Brown for November 12th. It was all set up. She's good to go. In fact, in the comment section of her Instagram feed, it actually Mariah Carey commented, said, that looks beautiful, but it's pretty early, uh, pretty early don't you think? So uh, even she felt it was early. Your thoughts, first of all, what is your idea of when is the right time to start decorating and putting up a tree for Christmas? Well, you said you're starting to put up the decorations this weekend, or I, I at least have to bring them out. And yeah. I think over the next week, next week we'll probably start putting them up, which is an early start. Generally, like I said, I'm a December first kind of guy, but this is early. But we're trying to be organized. Oh, jazz. That is very late. <laughs> what? That is so late. What? Oh my God, sir. Um. <laughs> Why would you say that? Jazz, where I'm from, uh, as a Filipino man myself, we mm-hmm. celebrate Christmas starting in the Burr months. And by the Burr months, I mean any month that ends in the last three letters, B-E-R. So we go as early as September. No way. Yeah. We, we, the Christmas decorations go up. The trees go up as early as September. That is how I grew up in the Philippines. That is what I witnessed. And you know what? Maybe still to this day, 
we just go that early for so, Christmas decorations. So, so, uh, sorry, so Canadians of Filipino descent in this country start putting up trees in September? Oh, that tree is up, sir. No way. When we say Christmas season, we literally mean season. Really? So yes. you have family and friends that right now, do you have family and friends that have trees up? Oh, yeah. They, they're, they're definitely getting the lights up. Um, they, we have this decoration called the, um, the parol. So it's like a star lantern kind of thing. So I started seeing those in like store wind, like store windows in Vancouver. I see some every, um, some households that I've been through, some houses that I drove by. And even like back when I was still in the Philippines, as early as September, um, they start setting up the decorations throughout the city. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and, what, and what is driving this need to start decorating and putting up trees and everything else in September? Well, in the Philippines, um, we're mainly, uh, we're a predominantly Catholic yeah. uh, country, right? Uh-huh. So, yeah. I think it's just because of that, plus the excitement of Christmas and, like, what it means. Um, that's kind of why we start celebrating this early. Like, it, we just love this season. There's just so much excitement around it. It's, like, the best time to spend in the family. It's, it's all about love. It's all about peace and all that stuff. So, I, there's just a lot of excitement surrounding Christmas because it's, it's such a positive holiday for most people, right? So, there's just a lot of fun that's in there the the vibe of it is just so exciting so even the hype going up to christmas is just what keeps people so upbeat and we're like oh my god christmas is is coming it's it's really exciting yeah well i was talking to chris kalis earlier on the show and he says for him it's usually a few weeks before christmas i think like the second week of december right uh when he gets going although he says he's already got some eggnog in the house uh ryan uh how about you In, in your family when have you traditionally started the decorations and the trees and everything else? December 1st. December, December 1st. 1st. Look, there's nothing wrong with November yeah. as long as it's after November 11th. So yeah. after Remembrance Day, I think it's all fair game. But December 1st, I think, you know, that's a sort of a good solid, you know, this is the month. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that just continues all the way until I would say first week of January. That's when you start to kind of take some stuff down, especially the stuff inside. The yeah. lights outside, those can stay up. Uh, but, you know, as as you know, Jess, some of those lights that are out, they've been up since October for <laughs> Diwali, of course, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of, you know, Punjabi families over uh, where I that grew I up, of course, right? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, look, December, that's the month. Yeah. Keep it all the way to the first week of January. Anything before November, I'd say, you're too early. Last year here at the mall, Pacific Center, they had stuff up in October before Halloween. And I've noticed this year there's been a change. Uh, they haven't really put stuff up until about last week. Really? They had, yeah. they had Christmas decorations up for last year, before yeah. Halloween? Halloween. I remember at the Hollister, they had their lights up and everything. Really? But now they're kind of starting to, maybe about this week now, I'm starting to see it more and more. I just had somebody tweet at me, uh, and they're saying, this weekend is the time. <laughs> They've got a picture of a Christmas tree, a small little tree on a table in their house. I'm looking at it now. So some people are already uh, in the Christmas period. Give me a call on the open line. Like, the reason, uh, Stephen, I was thinking is that, you know, I guess people have pre-lit trees now. So if you, you were to get right. uh, sort of a, the traditional tree, it would almost be very dry by the time Christmas Day <laughs> rolls around. It would always be a fire hazard if you put it up now. But uh, I guess with pre-lit trees, people can put them up whenever they want. And, and if they're in the spirit, you go, right? Yeah. And then, like, the real trees are also such a hassle to, you know, like, make sure they're cut down. You bring them in the house. Whereas, like, the pre-lit trees or the... Um, the not real trees, I guess you get from Canadian Tire and stuff like that. It's easy to set up. 
Yeah, that's yeah. true. Never had a real one in my life. Really? No. I, I, yeah, I know. But the folks that want real trees really want real trees, and, and uh, they are absolutely adamant about that. Give me a call in the open line. I want to hear from you. Uh, when is the right time to put up your Christmas tree and the Christmas lights and decoration? When does Christmas begin for you? Let's go to our open line. Let's go to Jen in Surrey. Hi, Jen. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing very well. So what's your idea of the right time to decorate and put up a tree for Christmas? So typically we wait until we observe Remembrance Day and then my family gets going with things. So I do this last weekend would have been our weekend, but we were a little bit busy. So I feel like we're late now. Wow. And yes, and having said that, um, I did bring a tree in from home to my workplace today, and we got it put up there. And there were a few comments that it was a bit early, but for the most part, I feel like it brought a lot of joy to everybody. In my workplace, we've not spent a lot of time together around the holidays for the last couple of years because of the pandemic. So just being able to come together and do that as a team and a group was really awesome for us. I think that's a really good point you make. I think it's always a great time of the year, but I think in the last couple of years what we've gone through uh, and, and still in some ways are challenged uh, because of COVID, I think people really love the family time, like being off, they like spending time with family and just being, uh, you know, just open, spending time together. It's so very much important and with COVID uh, imp- uh, impacting our lives so much. You're absolutely correct. Jen, thank you so much for your call. I think a lot of that drives it as well. Uh, And maybe that's why people, some people that I've noticed want to start early. Uh, Let's go to Ty in Burnaby. Hi, Ty. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. What's on your mind? When do you start decorating? Well, honestly, my family doesn't really do a lot of decorating. My mom did when we were younger, but as we grow older, we just kind of haven't. But for me personally, I find that just for, to pay the respect for all the veterans, mm-hmm. um, past and uh, current, it's been more important to have that separation between Christmas and Remembrance Day. But we were just in Hawaii this uh, past Halloween, and on October 31st, it got Halloween decorations all over the place. November 1st, there was Christmas decorations and leftover Halloween decorations at a mall. Oh, jeez. Wow. Well, I couldn't quite figure that out. So, you know, it, it seems to be quite different. Yeah, I mean, I, there, I mean, for me, at its core, it is a religious holiday first uh, for for those of the Christian faith. Uh, but it also, yeah. there's a commercial event, a commercial side of it. And then, of course, there's a third side, which is just most important is, for a lot of folks. is just the fact that you get to spend time with family and friends. It is sacred in a non-religious way as well. Uh, and oh, I, I, that's what I value the most. Like, I didn't grow up in a, a Christian home. I'm of the Sikh faith. But my wife, also of the Sikh faith, but she, they celebrate at Christmas every year. It's a big family event, and, and we've made it a big event and a bigger event. And my son loves it, which is wonderful. Lots of family time, spend time with cousins. I think that's most important. Um, but I, 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 I do sometimes get a bit turned off between Christmas uh, decorations coming out early and all those kinds of things. And I know people go and shop, but uh, I think you raise a very good point uh, to wait at least until after Remembrance Day out of respect for those who have sacrificed uh, for our freedoms and the choice that it gives us. Uh, thanks for your call, Ty. Really appreciate it. Let's go to uh, Cameron in Chilliwack. Hi, Cameron. Hey, how you doing, Jeff? I'm doing very well. How about you? When do you put up a Christmas tree? Well, um, well before I say that, I do want to say one thing. I'm a Canadian Army veteran. Yep. And we don't care. When you put up your, so don't <laughs> don't don't be wrapping yourself up in veterans' issues uh, because you don't like your neighbor putting up his Christmas tree. 
Um, you know, there are real issues that affect veterans, and Christmas trees aren't one of them. Yeah. Um, but that being said, uh, when I was a kid, it used to be December 15th because my dad's birthday was the 14th. Okay. But now um, I like one of my things, one of my chores on Remembrance Day is going to get the tree, and we're starting putting it up now. And we take our stuff down uh, two weeks after the new year because it's after Epiphany. Um, so we got to, you know, it's up for two full months. But, man, you know, if, if, if somebody, if having the lights up and having all that is making people feel better, Yes. You know, put it up on Boxing Day, man. Like, leave them up. <laughs> Thanks you know, so if much. That's, if that's what gets you through the day. Yeah, I appreciate uh, your call, Cameron. And thank you for your thoughts as well. And uh, it's great to get a perspective that it's okay to put it up before Remembrance Day. And others feel uh, that they'd rather wait till uh, after Remembrance Day. New shipments of children's pain medication will be available for retail purchase in the coming weeks thanks to foreign supplies of the medication recently secured uh, by Health Canada. Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos said the shipments are equivalent to months of normal supply of analgesics, which is in addition to the increased domestic production of the products. Now, the shipments of children's acetaminophen, which was announced today, are the latest in efforts from the federal government to secure additional supplies of children's pain medications due to a shortage of both children's acetaminophen and ibuprofen uh, that have been ongoing since um, the summer. Uh, today, uh, a pack of Advil, you may have noticed, actually not today, but over the weekend, you may have noticed a pack of Advil was on sale, get this, for nearly $300 on Amazon. It would highlighted the shortage of kids' pain medication uh, due to the surge of respiratory illnesses and, and huge pediatric patient volumes that we're seeing uh, compounded in provinces like Ontario. So today's announcement by the federal government that they have purchase more children's pain medication and they will be available in the coming weeks. Um, it was good news. Health Minister Adrian Dick spoke on the issue earlier today. Congratulations to Health Canada. I think this will, will bring uh, comfort to a lot of parents and it assists us because without that frequently you get people visiting emergency rooms who ordinarily would not visit them if those if that uh, medication was there. And so this is something that we talked about at the Health Minister's Conference last week. We worked um, with Minister Duclos, and I'm delighted that they've achieved some success. And I think that will have an impact, a positive impact for parents and children uh, uh, as the supply becomes available, and I'm expecting it to become available in, in the coming weeks. That was Health Minister Adrian Dix. Joining me now is Dr. Brendan Rung, a family physician and Global News and CKNW medical contributor. Dr. Rung, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me, Jess. Uh, let's uh, touch first on this image over the weekend uh, that we all saw on social media. Um, it was a screen grab from a an Amazon, uh, um, I guess, um, ad, basically selling children's Advil for $300 for one package. What went through your mind when you saw it? No, I was quite disheartened to see it, um, as I'm sure you and many other people were, and it does reflect that um, there has been an ongoing shortage, but also that uh, when these things happen, there is a societal response of panic and um, when people have a platform like Amazon, um, there is uh, um, an ability to price gouge and profit off of the pain of others. And so it's quite disheartening. Uh, how in your mind did we get here? Yeah, I think this is something that's been going on for quite a while because uh, it was when I uh, was reading up on this, I thought it was actually first, the shortage was first identified a month ago um, in the summer and it's really gotten a lot more attention in the last few 
weeks because we are, have also noticed the seasonal change. Uh, we're going into fall, um, you know, there's been drastic temperature changes the last few weeks, and there's been a lot of circulating um, viruses as well with RSV, the respiratory syncytial virus, influenza as we enter flu season, and um, COVID, of course. And so with that, we're seeing this um, increased need where people would need these fever-reducing pain um, medications uh, at the same time where this shortage has continued. And now, of course, we're seeing the really um, dark side of society, which is um, using this as an opportunity to profit off of others. Mm -hmm. Um, In regards to today's announcement, uh, where the Health Canada announced that it had secured a foreign supply of children's acetaminophen and it will be available for retail purchase uh, for parents, uh, uh, at uh, local pharmacies in, in the next coming weeks. Will that, do you think, address uh, the challenges that are there or is more needs to be done? Well, I think it will. Um, uh, for this current um, situation, it, uh, it almost certainly will help because um, I think it's important to remember we often do go to online convenience-based purchases, but we should always use, like this to me is an opportunity to use that as a, you know, kind of a gut check is, you know, am I paying a fair price for this um, or, you know, can I go to my local pharmacy down the street and get it for cheaper? Um, and so while this um, the supply coming in will help address that, it also does highlight that there are um, recurrent drug shortages that happen. And we've seen a lot of this over the last couple of years, supply chain issues, manufacturing issues, and that it is, a, you know, a reminder that um, take things for granted, buy things like in the amount that you need, um, but also knowing that um, overstocking on this can actually perpetuate the supply chain problems. Mm-hmm. Can parents give their children a certain amount of adult medication uh, when dealing with some of their ailments? I know uh, recently we went to Walmart and uh, they were out of children's medication uh, in the Walmart that we we went to. Uh, I know my, my colleague uh, Richard Zussman saw the same sort of thing, same weekend in Victoria as well. Can parents uh, rely on some adult medication and can children use that adult medication uh, in some cases? It really depends on what the formulation is um, because... The other thing I think that we take for granted, regular acetaminophen or ibuprofen, if you go into a regular pharmacy, there's actually quite a lot of um, options usually which we're accustomed to. Lots of different formulations. Some are gel caps, some are tablets, some are capsules, um, some are, um, you know, even in other cough and syrup medications which actually have acetaminophen and ibuprofen in it. But we have to be really careful. Yes, if it's something as, you know, a pure acetaminophen um, and there is um you know, weight-based guidance based on children and you're able to cut it um, for a regular release, probably reasonable to do that. But then you also have to go into like, can the child swallow tablets um, or not? And or do they need syrup um, um, preparations? And also like um, just um, in some of these sustained release ones, um, it's not all, It's not necessarily that you cut it in half means you'll get half the dose. So I would definitely, like, if you're considering doing that, that is a very reasonable, um, specific question based on the product you're looking at that you could ask the pharmacist or your um, primary care provider. Uh, as a doctor, uh, we're hearing a lot of news, obviously, out of Ontario and some of the challenges they're having with having with COVID, uh, with the respiratory season. Um, what are you seeing right now as someone who sees patients 
dealing with other doctors as well. What are you hearing from the front lines here in British Columbia? Oh, absolutely. There's pressures on the systems. I mean, one of the um, things that I think hasn't actually been picked up quite um, well, um, um, to no fault of anyone, is that it, it, you know, we saw that last week in BC Children's Hospital, you know, there's a lot of um, attention because uh, the average number being seen every day went up from, you know, 130 to 150 or something like that. So, you know, about a 10% rise in cases, and that was to have caused concern of what the downstream impact of that is. But if you look at other populations within the lower mainland, um, you know, I have colleagues that work in uh, the emergency room in Surrey, and their volumes are super high. They've had over 200 pediatric visits every day at Surrey Memorial Hospital over the last week. And that's with a much less resourced hospital um, than uh, BC Children. So I think there are other regional issues that we need to look at as well. Um, for me on the front line, I'm seeing a ton of coughs, cold fevers. Um, when someone presents to me, it's usually quite early in the illness, sometimes on phone, sometimes in person, depending on what the patient's able to do and kind of how we're able to accommodate them in our schedules too. So I think what my important thing is um, to tell patients or mothers or fathers or children too, if they were talking to them, is at the very onset, you might, you probably won't be able to tell whether it's a cold or if it's a flu, if it's RSV, if it's COVID. So what can you do to protect yourself? There's the basic things, which you've heard us say for years on end now, uh, you know, you, you're wearing your mask. Um, in reasonable settings, where reasonable settings, whether when you're out, especially at this time of year, it actually makes a bigger impact. Um, you have um, you're using your regular hand hygiene might not be so effective against some of the COVID transmission, but definitely you get some of the other viruses. It will if if you are eligible for a vaccine preventable illness such as influenza. Um, um, or COVID right now, make sure you have those up to date. And then um, knowing that a fever um, with um, runny nose, muscle aches, sore throat um, can be a very general presentation. So it, it, if um, you're a child, for example, uh, if you're a parent and you have a young child and you're not sure they're sick, look at their other things. How is their hydration? How is their behavior? How is their peeing and their pooping? And if that's all normal, um, maybe watching and waiting, get it once you have some Tylenol, uh, acetaminophen, use that. And then there, um, look, talk to HealthLink, give you advice, look up on other um, um, sources of information through the CDC Public Health on certain things you can do to uh, watch out for uh, danger signs for your child. And then if you are worried about something, then take them to the hospital or the urgent care. Hmm. Um, if you take them too early, mm -hmm. there's not a lot that might be able to be done. That's, a, that's the only con uh, risk I would worry about. When do you think we will heat, uh, hit that peak period in regards to hospital visits, uh, challenge to the system? Is it sometime in December, January, generally when we see this? Um, generally, it, it is a bit later when the winter uh, months have peak flu usually doesn't happen until, I guess, at, uh, anywhere between December to February. But with the seasons being so uh, unpredictable right now, I actually don't think I have the, the technical expertise to answer that, hmm. um, but I do think that um, it we are in for a lot more transmission, and that we're already seeing that in Canada, and for um, those of us who have been looking overseas, we've actually been seeing a lot of that in the Southern Hemisphere, too. In Australia winter season, they had five times the amount of influenza cases, so we know that the more virus that's circulating in a community, whatever virus it is, or even bacteria for certain things... Um, 
there will be a, a certain subset of the population that will get hit harder by it. When they get hard, hit harder by it, then they will need those more um, acute services, whether it's the emergency room or getting admitted into hospital. So that's where we need to, you know, take a, a, a look at it from the general public point of view, which is, is there something I could do personally that can, uh, you know, help myself, help my neighbor, help my family, help my work colleagues? And if we can, then we should just make sure we're optimizing that. Dr. Narang, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me. Have a great evening. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.